You're listening to Healing with Purpose, a show that brings you wholehearted conversations for self-healers with your hosts, Lydia and Sarah. We're just two gals in our 30s trying to figure out our own selves while also trying to help others in our day jobs as counselors. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Healing with Purpose. This is episode number 18, and we are excited and grateful to have our longtime friend and colleague, Viridiana Rubio, on the show today. February is Black History Month, and we wanted to offer something to our community that would help each of us in our anti-racism work. Viridiana is a licensed professional counselor supervisor and a registered play therapist in the state of Texas. She received her master's in education from the University of Texas at El Paso in 2011, and she's been working with children, adolescents, adults, and families for over 10 years in our home city of El Paso, Texas. She's been trained in many therapeutic approaches, including sensory motor psychotherapy, EMDR, CBT, and child-centered play therapy. Vididiana approaches her clients as holistic beings and helps them build awareness to explore wounds and trauma and to allow a person to achieve healing within themselves. Currently, Viridiana is a clinician at a comprehensive care center here in El Paso where she serves the students of one of our local school districts. She sees children from ages 4 to 19. She also has a side practice called The Root Counseling where she serves adolescents and adults. We are so grateful for, to Viridiana for being here today to share her knowledge and wisdom on this topic, and we hope you love this discussion. Hi, Vidi. Hello. Hi, welcome. We're so excited to have you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I have like so much inspiration happening right now <laughs> in my heart that I'm just like, it's going to burst open, but I'm, oh, I'm really excited. Beautiful. <laughs> well, you are um, our second guest on our show and we're so very grateful to have you here. Um, we specifically wanted to have you here because obviously February is Black History Month and obviously anti-racism work is super important. So we're grateful that you came on to, to share a little bit of your knowledge with us and we were curious if you could just, you know, share a little bit about what called you into becoming more passionate about this topic over, over your career and your life. Yeah, sure. Um, for me, it actually happened after the Walmart shooting. I, I was really shook up by that and I couldn't understand why. Um, prior to this, I could say that I was not a racist. <laughs> I could say that I was not discriminating against people. You know, I could say all of that. Um, but I, did, I didn't quite understand any of it. I, I, to be honest, I didn't. And when this happened um, in my beloved, you know, safe, beautiful, loving, friendly city of El Paso, I just couldn't understand it. I really couldn't. So, you know, as, as this was happening, so much more turmoil, social turmoil was happening, and I was becoming more aware and more curious. And I'm a really action-oriented person, so I remember thinking, I need, I need to figure out what this is. You know, I need to do something about it. And so one of the, the things that I'm passionate about is child therapy, right? And so I remember thinking, like, how are children learning from this? This is very old, old stuff. And how do we teach kids about this? And how do they feel about this? You know, all of it. So I, 
I, I made a, a presentation for the our, our local play therapy association, and I learned so much. I was super passionate about it very quickly after that. So that's how it started. I love that you said I'm an action-oriented person. I feel like most people who are therapists probably fall into that category. Like there's a problem and like we are like like problem solvers, right? Like we want to seek to find the answers to yeah. suffering or to systemic problems. Or I find that that's like an investigative quality that's present in most of us as therapists. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Even yes. as you just, right when you said the Walmart shooting is like my my body felt something and it's like, I just felt like tears behind my eyes and just, it made me just stop and think about, Mm -hmm. yes, it did drastically and it affect our community and and made us so vulnerable. And with that vulnerability, it's felt like you were trying to access, what is this? Like, what do I want to do with this feeling of this vulnerability in our community? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So much pain uh, came through, um, but also, a lot of like awareness of like, man, like I'm super ignorant in some of these things. And these are old stuff. This is very old stuff happening around me. And, you know, part of it is because I, and you know, in Spanish, you say, estoy con mi gente. I'm with my people, you know, and that's, that's how it's been all my life. I live here in El Paso where it's 80 plus percent Hispanos and I'm surrounded by people I feel very comfortable with. You know, and the fact is that I, in that also comes a lot of um, kind of sheltering and sheltering can kind of create ignorance of not, not being exposed to diversity and other bigger concepts. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if you are an adult that's new to anti-racism work, where is somewhere that, that you can begin? Yes. So that's a good question. I, um, I, I definitely believe that education is the first place to go. And, you know, it's a good foundation. I really love um, the work of Ibram X. Kendi, I want to say. Yes, Ibram X. Kendi. And he has a book that is called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm-hmm. And it's a very practical read. Um, and he really uh, states that having real definitions on these concepts is a good starting point. So like, for example, what is being an anti-racist? And to be honest, I never heard of that term before. I didn't even know that could be a thing. Uh, Of course, he lists off other, other definitions, but like this definition, I think is an important place to start. And he defines this as one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. Mm. So I love that because he also describes it as a verb. Mm. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm very action oriented, right? So I'm like, oh, this is something <laughs> we have to do. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't just an idea or an opinion or being like, you know, something. It is a, something we do. It's an intention. Mm. So I believe that that's where it starts. It's, that's a good book. Of course, there's a lot of other films. I know I've given you all, you know, a list of films that I've watched and that I recommend all people to watch. Like, for example, I Am Not Your Negro. I love that one. 13th is another good one. Um, Teach Us All about our educational systemic problems. Uh, Rap Film is another good one. The Uncomfortable Tooth, which is a documentary. 
So really it starts with education. How do I start learning about these things and have those uncomfortable feelings about, like, like I said, like I, I was super um, unaware of these things. And I could tell, I could tell myself, like you were being ignorant all this time. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of people, but that's where we start the education. Thank you for normalizing that you didn't know, because I think that's the scariest thing to say is, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about, or, or I just don't know a lot about it. I think for a lot of people, not knowing feels like, at some point, it kind of almost feels like shame, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, when I realized that moment for me, when I realized I didn't know very much and, and how ignorant I was being, my reaction was to cower. I, like, folded mm-hmm. into myself and was like, just don't leave the house. Just like, don't, just don't go anywhere. Don't hurt anybody. Don't do anything. Like that was my response. And so I love that you said like, you just like got curious and you started researching all this stuff. And so I admire that that was your reaction. Cause mine was, mine was fear, like total fear of like, oh shit, what do I do now? Like, how do I be better? And I felt paralyzed by like, where do I begin? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, depending on, on your history and your own stuff, you're going to react to, this is scary stuff. This is, like I keep saying, it's old, very old stuff that is still here. You know, it's still here and people want to believe and say that they're, that it's not, but it is, right? And so depending on who we are, we are going to have a different response to it. Yeah. And it's okay. Whatever response you have, it's absolutely okay. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention uh, in this, you know, uh, trying to become introspective on your own belief system, there is a a, a cool project, uh, and it's called the Implicit Associations Test. It's out of Harvard. And you take the test and they actually tell you what implicit associations you have about race, gender, sexual orientation, and other stuff, right? They'll tell you, oh, yes, you have a bias when you see people who have a different shape of eye or you have a bias when you see people who are darker than you. Mm. And, and it, it's a test, you know, it's science. It's got some, something that they do and it's research. Uh, so I think it's great. So if I think I encourage people to go on there and take it. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's another good starting point. Like what is an implicit association? What is an implicit bias? And why is it so important to look at these because they're unconscious. Mm-hmm. We're going to be behaving based on what's internally happening, like our internal systems. And, and some of those internal systems, a lot of those internal systems are, are biased. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. I was in my master's program years ago, they had us do something. I don't know if it was the same one, mm. but I remember taking it and really realizing the like hidden bias idea of I don't consider myself to be like a hateful, hurtful person. I consider myself to be very warm and welcoming to everyone's, you know, race, gender, identification, whatever is, is meaningful to them. I want to support them in that. And then you take the test and you're like, whoa, like, like simple things. Like you're saying that we don't realize that like as soon as we see someone's eyes that are a different shape Mm -hmm. that maybe we didn't see a lot of growing up, there's this immediate Mm -hmm. association with like something that's not familiar and therefore Mm -hmm. like... I don't know if threatening is the right word, but it's interesting 
just to, on the surface level to think I am an accepting open person. And then you take one of those tests and you realize, wow, there's a lot hidden under the surface that I just wasn't aware was still informing the choices that I'm making, even though cognitively I'm saying I, I am warm and welcoming to everyone. Mm-hmm. It's almost like yeah. you're saying that uh, your belief system was based on like your intention. Like I, I, I have no intention to hurt people or, or harm people. And so Therefore, I must not have any bias. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I would think like that too. Mm-hmm. Once you were saying it, I was like, I think it's, we frame it from our intention. Yeah, n- not actually maybe what is really existing within us, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, implicit uh, memory, implicit bias, anything that has to do with the unconscious is has been really hard to study, one. And whatever studies have come up have shown that it's really hard to change. Mm. (laughs) And, and it's, and it's something we have to work on every day, which is why I love this anti-racist idea because it's a way of life, right? Like you have to put in the work. It's not just about uh, uh, people of color. It's about everything else that's been changing in our society. It's about all of the sexual orientation changes that are happening it's about, um, you know, different uh, people who express themselves uh, spiritually different, right? That we don't understand. We don't understand it. And we're going to be like, mm, that's weird. Mm-hmm. So we have some form of implicit uh, feeling because it's different, mm-hmm. right? And so this is something we got to do every single day because it's, it's, um, it's hidden. It's something sneaky happening, happening around in our psyche, I'm curious, Vidi, do you think that any of any of that is based in like if we didn't see it growing up, it wasn't normalized and like what isn't typical or normal we perceive as fearful or threatening? Like, do you think it goes to that kind of like very basic level as humans? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do believe that. And, and really, it's a matter of neurobiology, right? Because you know, when we're little, we don't know anything. There's no neurons happening. So when we're growing up and we're, let's say, for example, me, I grew up with people that look like me only, only there was not a lot of whites in my, in my school or in any uh, people that were black. I didn't see any of that. Maybe one or two here. I grew up with, with kids that looked like me and that means that my neurons linked to only that, right? To, to feel safe around people that looks like that look like me. Mm. So it is, it is true that um, there's a lot of um, safety associated with what you're surrounded by. Mm. Of course, there's a lot more uh, to that in terms of like your family dynamics and things like that. But the fact is that I feel safer when I'm here. I'll go to places where it's more, um, where there's more, um, where there's more white people. Mm-hmm. Like I've gone to to Boston, and I remember being like, I don't know, I don't like it here. I think they're judging me. I don't think they like me here. I think that maybe they are thinking bad about me. Um, and and that that made me feel unsafe. I kept just wanting to be back with my people. You know, mi gente. I want to go back to mi gente. And that's not always the, the best thing, you know, and I need to be exposed to people that don't look like me, that don't talk like me, that have different ways of thinking. And, mm-hmm. and so, yes, 
make a long story short, absolutely, I believe that um, it has a lot to do with um, um, kind of the things that we are used to, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It reminds me too, I, I listened to this other podcast the other day about um, um, Sidney Poitier. He was the um, black actor that died, I think, in early January. And mm. the whole episode was talking about how he was the first black man in media to be portrayed not in a really overly threatening way. And mm. I think about that too, how, you know, growing up in the 80s and the 90s for me, there weren't a lot of like positive examples of people of different races portrayed in the things that I watched and how that informed, you know, the the neurons that connected in my brain. And mm-hmm. um, the podcast that I was listening to, the the whole story was that that this gentleman was sort of the most important actor in the history of, you know, the last century. And they were saying because he helped reframe that this historical context that black people are dangerous Mm -hmm. is he, he was the first person to start to play, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or these different characters that were, um, you know, had, had dignity and had, had, feelings and had a story right and how important that was at that particular time in our in our history and has continued to influence and make space for more of that as time has continued Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah our early experiences have such a big impact um which is why you got you have to as a as an adult person or as a person who's already kind of shaped in some way in order to change those wirings, right? Because we've already been wired. We need to go and have a lot of self-reflection. There are a couple of questions that I think really help with that self-reflection. One of them is, when were you first aware of your race race or prejudice? Hmm. Think about that. Like when, when did that happen? For a lot of kids, it's very, very young. And that creates a marking, right? The, the, the neuron linked with something. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as, because we are a society that functions with systems, right? Systems that are problematic, that have created this problem like systemic racism. And, and once those, those uh, that link or that neuron is linked to something else, it just continues to get reinforced and reinforced and reinforced over the course of your entire life. So if we could go back and say, ah, that's when I first, when that's when it first started, then that's when we can start changing. Like that's when it started. And then it just started building after that. Mm -hmm. I love the example that you're providing about the neurons because it's helping me understand in this moment. Like the, when I think about the first time for me was that, we had traveled out of town for uh, my uncle's graduation. And in doing so, there were people who didn't want to sit with us. It was like a subway and people didn't want to sit where the Mexicans were sitting Mm -hmm. and verbalized it loudly enough for us to hear. Mm -hmm. And I had never experienced something like that, that I didn't even understand that people wouldn't want to sit near me or my family. And it was Mm -hmm. shocking in the moment to think, how could Mm -hmm. that even happen? Like, where, where did this come from? I didn't live in a community where this was even a thought. Wow. How old were you? I think at that time I was eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, that associated with uh, rejection, you know, maybe people looking at you funny. Uh, does that mean I'm weird? 
does that mean that there's something wrong with me, right? As a child, you're going to have all these questions. And because we're people that don't talk about this very, very well yet, um, all we have left to do as a child is internalize it. That's it. Yeah. Fill (laughs) fill in the blanks, right? Internalize. Yeah. I'm weird. Something's wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I remember... um, I grew up in a very, very small town, predominantly white, predominantly Christian, very sheltered. And I don't know where we were. I was maybe four or five. And I remember um, a black man walking into the restaurant. And out of curiosity, I asked my mom, why is that man's skin so dark? I I don't know if I had never seen a black person before. It's possible given how sheltered I was growing up. And my mom's reaction was like, shh, yeah, don't say anything. And I think she didn't want me to embarrass her, like call this gentleman out who was just trying to like walk into a restaurant and have dinner. But I internalized a lot of shame about that. Like I shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't have commented. I was just a curious four-year-old, but, Mm -hmm. but that elicited a very negative reaction. I think unintentionally from my mother, but it, it left an imprint. Right. And, um, yeah, and those imprints, they like you're saying, they inform later experiences and mm-hmm. how we start to shape and perceive different mm-hmm. things moving forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think I talk about this a little bit later, um, but we we internalize this very early on in our in our life, earlier than anybody is really aware of. And so um, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that you know we're talking about this and. That's a that's a question. That's just one question. Um, the the other questions are, for example, uh, what do you remember about childhood? Um, about how you made sense of human differences and what confused you. So this is something that kids like you were very observant. You know, you saw that man, and it was uh, something different. Mm-hmm. And be, because we're little, we don't know anything. We don't. We don't see everything. Every time we see something new, it's new. It's actually new. And so if if us adults or as parents, we can be a little bit more guiding instead of, I don't know how to deal with this. Just don't say it, mm-hmm. right? Because then it's going to confuse us. Like you, you, um, you made sense of it in the way that you had to make sense of it in the, at the time. Unfortunately, you, you harbor some or you harbored some shame about it, that's how it happens, you know? And and then that shame is paired with other stuff like maybe guilt or embarrassment. And depending on a personality, right, we're going to either like act out or go inside. Mm-hmm. So that's another good question. Another one is what childhood experiences did you have with friends or adults who were different from you in some way? For me, I, I, I keep saying, right? Like I, I didn't have any people around me that were different. And, um, and I wish that I had, I think my experiences would have been more diverse and more enriching. Mm-hmm. And then another one is how, if ever, did any adult give you help thinking about human differences? Did you all get any help with that? Hmm. My initial thought is no, in regards to, <laughs> I, I just don't think it, when I was growing up, that it was a conversation. It wasn't something that was normalized to have, mm-hmm. like where we are trying to get to now and, and sort of bringing about these points of how to 
these, these conversations that tell people this is how we can do it. I feel like there wasn't enough resources maybe at that time. Mm-hmm. I think that um, th- the best thing I can reference is many people have never met me in person, but I only have eight fingers. And my parents, rather than like addressing my differences, just said absolutely nothing ever about it ever. It was mm-hmm. like, we don't talk about it. You figure out how to tie your shoes anyways. You figure out how to write anyways. Like there was never a, let's help Lydia because she's missing two fingers. It was just like, you just go to school and figure it out. Go to school and figure it out. So I don't really know kind of like how I figured it out, but I did. And I think that, that there was in my experience, kind of like Sarah sharing, there was, there was sort of less guidance and sort of like, just figure it out, which Mm. we all did. Right. But I think guidance would have been really nice and supportive and helpful sometimes in navigating these confusing ideas that were, that occur in all of our childhoods. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so, okay. So that's kind of some, some things for, for us to, you know, reflect upon as we're doing some of this internal work as adults. Um, and also to start getting better, I think, because although I'm, I'm a play therapist and I'm very uh, passionate about play therapy, right. A child, uh, child therapy, Um, I'm not an expert in this topic. You know, sometimes I don't know what to say. Um, And it's because I'm, I'm barely learning and I have so much more to learn. Mm -hmm. I may be an expert in child development and play therapy, and I can have all these skills, but when this child in the playroom or my niece is saying a comment or, you know, and I, and I can be shocked, right? So Mm -hmm. having these, you know, opportunities to talk, and have conversations, and read, and watch, and talk, and listen, it helps our brain chemistry start to change, right, start to change in the way we are um, really thinking about these things, and talking about them. I love that you're saying that, like, there's, there's hope in that for me, of, like, we can all start wherever we are, and Mm -hmm. we can figure it out, and so (laughs) I'm super excited to dive in, Vidi, and and to talk a little bit more about, um, yeah, where do we start? So where do we start? Um, we start. You had mentioned you gave us some questions, right? And then you said that there were some, some like for children, it impacts them very early on. And mm-hmm. so how mm-hmm. early are we talking? Yes, very early, <laughs> like super early. Um the the research is still like changing. Uh, the last time I I read up on this, it was six months. Uh, I read an article uh, out of the University of Utah that's three months now, and I was like, wow, that's that's a that's huge. That's three months, right? So I like this infographic. I have it here in front of me, and I I I, lo- I like going back to it because whenever I'm thinking about children's development, I'm, I have to already be thinking about like, this is how they're internalizing race and other biases as well. It's not just race, right? Um, and it's out of the children's community school in Philadelphia. And at the top, it says they're not too young to talk about race. And that's so true. Um, one of the, re- the, the studies I was reading on is that was one of the biggest components is that parents were like, no, 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 this is way too big of a thing for my three-year-old child. And that's absolutely not true. Um, Because by three, 
we already have biases. Mm -hmm. So if we could start talking about it earlier, that would really help with that child's development in terms of these concepts, right? So like, for example, um, at birth, we see faces equally. We come out of our mom's womb and we are looking at all the faces and everybody's equal. By the by the age of three months, okay, just three months later, we are looking at faces that match the race of our caregivers uh, more frequently. Mm. Meaning, ah, this is this person looks like my mom. I'm gonna keep looking at people that look like this. Again, like like we were talking about earlier, right? It has something to do with whether it feels safer or um, if it's more frequent, right? That's the fact is that they're going to be around people that look like them. Mm-hmm. And so um, as children get older, by the age of two, they are already using race to reason about people's behaviors. Wow, at two. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yes. Already at two, they are already um, internalizing uh, race in whatever way is happening in their life, um, reading, leading to some racial bias, mm. right? I think that, two and a half, that that probably right. surprises a lot of people. It surprises me a lot, yeah, right? Absolutely. That by two, there's already a discernment happening that obviously isn't, uh, isn't conscious, right? They're not aware they're doing it, but there is a, a clear differentiation in how they're processing people based upon race. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it gets pretty um, specific after that. Um, right around two and a half, we are already choosing playmates based on our race. So we're going to prefer hanging out with kids that are that look like us. And that's by two and a half. So by about five our racial prejudice already peaks. We already have so much network developed in our mind, in our brain, that is going to be biased towards our own race, mm. depending on the race. Because by age five, children of color show no preference towards their own groups compared to uh, white kids who strongly bi- who are strongly biased in favor of whiteness. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, we'll, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, um, where, where that comes from. You know, as I mentioned earlier, there are systems in place, mm-hmm. structural, systemic uh, uh, systems that are severely biased towards uh, people who are white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first and thing the I thought it. was like white, like there's a preference for whiteness, right? You are rewarded yeah. for being white. And so yeah. how hard for a child who isn't white to be in an yeah. environment where they want to be something that they're not. Mm-hmm. Like what did, what did ch- children internalize about themselves yeah. through that experience, right? Right, right. Have you all ever heard of the doll test? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I hate watching the videos. Um, so this this test, um, it's a famous, it's a very famous study that happened in the eighties, and this um, I believe they were a couple, and they did a big experiment on how kids were being affected by segregation, and they found that um, all kids preferred dolls that were white on all levels, 
So if they asked the child which doll, when they would put a brown doll and a white doll, which doll is prettier, they would go for the white doll. Which doll is smarter, they would go for the white doll. Which is the bad doll, they would go for the brown doll. Mm. And so, you know, this leads to a lot of internalization, negative internalization about your own color. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that's just something we have to kind of face, right? With a lot of courage, we got to say, okay, this is what's happening. And how do we change it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens after five? So that was five. Well, after five mm-hmm. um, by about six, um, children are going to be showing many of the same racial attitudes that adults in their own culture hold. So they've already learned to associate some groups with a higher status and some other groups with the lower status. So this is by about six. And I, I like that at the end of this infographic, they have that by in around uh, age five to seven, uh, talking about these concepts and um figuring out ways to have interracial friendships can dramatically improve racial attitudes in a week. Wow. Isn't that amazing? In one week. Can you say that one more time? Mm -hmm. Yes. So it says explicit conversations with five to seven year olds about interracial friendship can dramatically improve their racial attitudes in as little as a single week. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That, that suggests that there's a lot we can do. That's yeah. what I'm just thinking. Mm-hmm. Talking about like inspiring motivation or change. This is something that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to take a very, very long time to do, especially with children. Yeah, to make an impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, especially with children because their brains are just so fresh and they're absorbing everything. And with as little as like one little conversation, they got it, you know, mm-hmm. they remember, they ha- they got it. I love it. So, um, yes. It makes my like 30 year old placid brain that doesn't want to change <laughs> cringe a little bit. Like, why can't I go back there and just reshape it a bit? You know, it takes so much more effort when you're older and your brain is crystallized a bit more. You got to work a little harder <laughs> to rewire yeah. those neurons. And yeah, I think absolutely. that that's, I love the way that you describe that too, because Unknown I think caller. that speaks to some of the um got a phone call coming in sorry guys sometimes i think it speaks to the fact of like why it might be so hard for adults to you know who resist change like you've got mm-hmm. all of these neurons that you mm-hmm. said have wired together and this is what feels safe and this is what my yeah. brain is telling me is safe and so yeah. like you said it just becomes harder to yeah to say oh i don't want to change that thought yeah, it's a very uncomfortable change. Um, and it's not easy. It's not easy because it's not happening every day. You so, know. So knowing that now we know that these at mm-hmm. these ages, what could be happening, then how mm-hmm. do we take that into how do we open up the dialogue of conversations with children at these developmental stages that they're at? Mm-hmm. So it depends on their age, right? So from zero to six, they're uh, primary uh, form of communication is play. 
So we want to play. We want to play with them uh, for parents, um, you know, get some toys that are diverse uh, for clinicians who are listening. Maybe, you know, make sure that your playroom has some some diverse toys. Um, I love I absolutely love I think I say this every time I talk about kids. <laughs> um, I love puppets. Uh, as soon as I put the no matter what whose child it is, as soon as I put the puppet on my hand, they know exactly what's going to come down. And it's like, let's talk. <laughs> They're going to have a puppet in their hand and we're going to be talking to each other. I love it. And so what I did is I found a collection of puppets that have different um skin tones, their hair is different, their eye shape is different, their eye eye shape, I'm sorry, their um, their hair color is different. There's boys, girls, you know, I, I absolutely love it. And so this is a good place to start is um, having toys that are of, of humans, right, of human people that are different. And, and you start with um, pointing out the individuality of everybody. So this is another big component in anti-racist work is individuality. Mm-hmm. Seeing another person's indivi- individual means noticing the details and qualities of one another, right? And so, um, so then you're you're with the child, no matter you know if it's from up to six six years, and have the dialogue of this one has very different hair. Oh, look at the color of this one. This one's different than this one. And it doesn't always have to be focused on race and those kind of differences. It could be just be like, oh, look at this one has pants. This one has a skirt on. This one's carrying this. This one's carrying that. Mm-hmm. Always really differentiating and focusing on what is different here. Mm-hmm. And there be something positive. Because as we know, different makes us feel scared, Mm -hmm. right? So when we can start associating um, differences with, it's okay, we accept it and it's uh, positive, then it can start changing some of those networks already built in them. Beauty, I think that you're naming some of like our, our like therapist, like magical qualities, which is one is using something outside of us to talk about a topic, right? Because puppets allow us to explore something outside of ourselves, which can sometimes feel less threatening early on. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. like naming, sometimes it's scary when people look different or um, have different qualities than us. And the last one is a common thing we use with children in the playroom, which is enlarging the meaning which is like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes people look different than other people and we can celebrate yeah. each other's differences. This is a way that we kind of enlarge meaning for kids. And even as adults, I use that tool all the time for myself and others. But I think you just laid out some of our, our secret weapons, if you will, <laughs> that we use with children. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, and it's it's really for for parents to start talking about. They're with them so, they're, they're with them the whole life. You know, we have them, what, an hour a week, maybe. And this, these topics don't come up in play. We're, we're tackling other stuff. Yeah. Um, but this, this stuff does come up, you know, and for children who are marginalized, there's a underlying reason why they don't feel safe in their environment. Mm-hmm. And it's not always just family stuff. 
Um, I'm curious about how, going back to Lydia's example earlier of seeing someone of a different color, whether it's in your community or outside, and, and children are curious, right? That was curiosity of asking mom, what, what is this, why is there colors of skin so different? How would you encourage a parent to respond to that in, a, in an appropriate way? Say that again. How would you encourage a parent to respond to a child who is curious about seeing someone of a different color? If they say it loudly, like in a oh. store or something like that. How? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, yes. At this, at this age, especially they're super spontaneous in, in just saying things like, <laughs> Lydia, I think you said you were how old? I was like four and Vidi, you've known me for a long time. You know, I'm like a, like a loud, like I say things like immediately. And so like, there was no holding back at all. I was like, bah! <laughs> <laughs> I think I embarrassed my mother a lot as a child. <laughs> that's so beautiful. That's like your personality. Yeah. And that's the that's the beauty of children is they have no filter. And I love it. I absolutely love it. They're so free. But, you know, they're spontaneous and they, they say things. And yeah, parents are going to be like, no, that's the <laughs> bad thing to say. Don't say that. And and that's that that's not you know going to be helpful so yeah so you know what i say to parents is stay calm take a breath be straightforward and positive so like let's suppose your your child said something like um that man has funny colored skin right then um you have to stay calm positive and say something like yes he does have brown skin it's not the same as yours but it's really nice too Period. Period, which is hard for parents, right? Leave it, let it go. Let let them kind of process it. Mm -hmm. Or yes, he does have darker skin than yours, but it's just as beautiful. Mm -hmm. Start practicing the language. And and then of course, if you want to add a little bit more of the of the um, equality network, then you say everybody deserves to feel safe and important. Everybody deserves to feel loved and beautiful in their own skin no matter the shade, mm-hmm. um, target it in that moment, but be very calm, mm-hmm. be calm, like, no, no big deal. Oh yeah. You said that. Okay. Let's talk about that. You know, mm-hmm. so you've got like acknowledgement and acceptance in there mm-hmm. is, is really important. It's what I keep hearing in, in, in every mm-hmm. example that you described, we're acknowledging mm-hmm. that yes, it does look different and we accept it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, now, there's another, there's a kind of a different conversation you have with a child who is being discriminated against, right? So like here in, in this area, we, we have a lot of kids who are um, undocumented and they've just immigrated here and they, you know, come from a, a background of a lot of trauma and, and so they're going to look different. Mm-hmm. they're gonna they're gonna they're not gonna feel safe even around people that look like them mm-hmm. right they've just gone through a tra- very traumatic experience so what could be said to them is something like go back to your country mm-hmm. and that needs to be addressed too why did they say to go back to my country that's another conversation for parents to have instead of saying don't worry about that no there's an actual feeling there that needs to be validated. You say to your child, you, you come down to their level and you say, how do you feel? And they're going to say a thing, you know, they're going to feel a thing, whatever they feel. And you validate it and you say, it's okay. That's, 
a hard feeling, you know, it's okay. What do you need? Do you want to hug? So whatever they need in that moment to feel nurtured and safe. And then the conversation is, it's okay to be different. And you say something like, that person, it's not okay for that boy or girl to have said that to you. They see you and they see you different and they're scared of different. Whatever it is that they were seeing in them that was different. You have to be very intentional about saying, we don't believe in this. We believe in things that are fair. We believe in things that are kind. We believe in acceptance. This is wrong. We don't agree with this, mm -hmm. right? These, these are very intentional things to say to kids when they've been demeaned because they're different, mm -hmm. right? So different conversations to have, but it's a lot of direct conversations, calm and calm and directive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think about a common thing that I don't know, you know, at what point in my education I learned it, but that if, if you react with a lot of emotion, people read the emotion, not what you're actually saying. And in so much of what you just stated, it's like, be calm and be very um, loving and, but matter of fact and direct, right? That, that if, if our emotionality increases and we're angry, you know, mm -hmm. how could they have said that to you? Then, then the yeah. children read the emotion and, instead yeah. of, you know, the love and the, the nurturance of it. So I think that's a helpful tip for all of us as we do this of just remembering to stay as calm and grounded as we can throughout mm -hmm. these conversations mm -hmm. such a valid point of like mm -hmm. if there's no language there then you absorb the emotion that's there because something is there mm -hmm. so you absorb what is there mm -hmm. yeah and the child's already having enough emotion right like yeah. if we want to attend and attune to what they're experiencing then you know, this doesn't need to be about us as an adult right now. Yes, we're angry and we're frustrated, but let's just attend to the child right now. And then we'll attend to mm -hmm. our emotion, you know, later in, in a way, if we can. Sometimes that doesn't happen because we're all human and sometimes we get mad and we react. But I think when possible, staying calm is is helpful. Yeah, not hard, not easy to do. Absolutely not. I mean, if somebody was, you know, being mean to, to somebody I love, I'm going to have an emotion. Mm -hmm. I am. Again, we're, we're talking about this in order for us to already start preparing for these conversations and, and have the, the information there, right, available when we need it. We're not going to use it all the time, but we can. We, can, we absolutely can. Um, for this age range, I... Actually, I think for all age, ages, because I still go to Sesame Street to learn. I really do. It's they give you such a foundational explanation of things that I really appreciate. So they have like a workshop for this kind of stuff. They have a full workshop. And I, I say that if parents want to start kind of exploring this with their children, if they haven't already, you know, watch that stuff. They have tons of videos. There's one that I love. This one's my favorite. It's Color of Me. Mm -hmm. And it talks about melanin. And it talks about like, your color is different and my color is different. And oh, so many different colors, right? And so um, just a, a very beautiful way of connecting with through songs, mm -hmm. through songs and puppets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my favorite. Yeah, it's at their level, right? I mean, uh -huh. even as adults, when we sing a song about something, I think we retain it a little bit better and it makes it, um, mm -hmm. 
it makes it, I don't mean to say that this topic is a playful topic, but I think that it makes something that's very serious and sometimes dysregulating feel a little bit more normalizing and playful. Like it's just, you know, we have different levels of, you know, melanin in our skin and it, it makes it feel more, um, I don't know, like less hostile and more accepting, you know? Yes. Yes. So I know you've taken us through um, how to talk about with, with children. And so now I'm curious about as adults, how do mm. we create social change? How do we create social change? That's a good question. Um, I think that it's not a very simple um, answer. Uh, but one of the ways that we can start is by figuring out what role you play already what roles inspire you to play and what roles uh make you feel a little bit curious like hmm like could i ever be in that role and i and i love um her name is deepa Iyer, and she has something called the building movement project and um and she has what is called the social change ecosystem map. And I absolutely love it because in the middle, she has her values, right? Not, not her values, the values she chose to put there. Because at the time when she developed this, like we were going through so many, so much social turmoil that this was, was what was needed. But it's not just these values. You can add more values to it as you're working through this ecosystem map. So what she has in the middle is equity, liberation, justice, and solidarity. Mm. And it's not just the, the eco map, the ecosystem map. It's all, it also comes with a framework of how do I, how do I figure out where I belong? Where do I start? How do I do this work? And it comes with a series of questions to help you reflect upon that role. So, for example, around these um, are, are the roles of the weavers, okay? So, the people who see through the lines of connectivity between people, places, organizations, ideas, and movements. Mm -hmm. So, these are the people that connect mm -hmm. people from very different places. Uh, the experimenters, of course, those are the people who are making things, they are inventing things, they are making systems, um, they are making, they're creating different systems. The frontline responders, they're the ones who address community crises, of course, we know that. The visionaries, the people who generate the boldest possibilities, hopes and dreams. The builders, uh, the ones who develop, organize and implement ideas, practices. The caregivers, I think, um, us as therapists are going to really relate to this one. <laughs> the ones who nurture and nourish the people around us by creating and sustaining community of care, joy, connection. We tend to be very nurture, very care caregiving people, right? Uh, the disruptors. I love these people who just get out there and take action. You know, they take risky action. They're the ones who, with their anger, like I've always said, Anger makes things change. 
Sarah it really I, does. Sarah and I call these the cycle breakers. <laughs> the cycle, oh, yes. the disruptors are the cycle breakers. Yes. Mm -hmm. I remember listening to your podcast on the Encanto mm -hmm. deep dive you did. Mm -hmm. And I love that. The minute Lydia, you said, I, I connect <laughs> with the cycle breaker and I'm like, yes, me too. I'm a cycle breaker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's like a little part of my heart. That's a disruptor, not a big part. Cause it scares me a little bit, but there's a little disruptor in there. But I think yeah, as therapists, yeah, yeah. we're kind of constantly asking people to be that, to right? be disruptors. To be yeah. disruptors. Yeah. <laughs> to step into that role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes so much courage. And, um, but there's a, there's, there's people who have it in them to, to, to just get out there and do this mm -hmm. Cour courageous, courageous people, the healers, of course, you know, we also are going to relate to the healers, the people who recognize and tend to the generational and current traumas mm -hmm. caused by oppressive systems, institutions, policies, and practices, the storytellers, um, the people who craft and share um, community stories, cultures, experiences, histories. I, I really feel like the storytellers are the ones who are in the, are in the podcasts, like you guys, um, the people who are in the documentaries, the films, the people who write stories, like actual books. And that's where I learned the most is, is through them, the storytellers. And then lastly, the guides, the people who teach counsel and advice using gifts, of discernment and wisdom. I love that one. I'm so glad that you brought this up today because I remember personally, you know, about 18 months ago, a friend shared this same infographic with me. Mm -hmm. And at the time, like I mentioned earlier, you know, when I started to acknowledge sort of the anti-racism work that I needed to do myself, I collapsed and I was like, where do I start? Mm -hmm. And I felt terrified. And I remember she gave that to me and, she, and that helped me realize that I didn't need to change every single part of the system on my own because sometimes that's been my thought process is there's so much that needs to be changed. I feel like I'm drowned and like, where do I begin? And so that, that infographic helped me personally a lot to say, my role is helping people heal. My role is maybe telling stories or helping to amplify voices that aren't heard. Like that's the role that I can take on and that is meaningful. And if that's what I have to offer, it's enough, right? And there are other people who are disruptors or other people who are guides that, that are going to help support this, this moving forward. And I don't have to do all of it by myself. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I encourage everybody to, to go on her website and um, print out her actual, um, I'm forgetting now what it's called. Oh, it's framework. Completely print it out and fill it out. Like sit with it and actually go through it because it's a process of like, hmm, I never thought that I would be curious about this one particular role, or I wouldn't, I, I never thought about the fact that in this work, you actually have to take care of yourself. You really have to take care of yourself, right? So she goes through these questions and these prompts that are very helpful. Um, I was able to identify myself as a builder, a caregiver, a disruptor, and a healer. Mm. And then one that I'm trying to kind of explore and be be more courageous about is is um to become a guide mm. i i wouldn't have been able to to figure those out without the framework mm. i think i would have just been like no of course mm -hmm. i'm just a healer i'm just a healer yeah 
Yeah. So it gave you language to see potential, right? That I can expand yeah. and into these things. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think your, your, your education has provided us such a wonderful guide today of giving us questions mm-hmm. to think about understanding where they, where these thoughts came from and then mm-hmm. understanding how, what role do I take on and how, where do I start? So I feel like I'm grateful for your education today because you've been our guide mm-hmm. in opening this conversation and, and for our listeners to have, mm-hmm. you know, know where to go. That's so beautiful. Like Sarah just called you a guide, VD. Like you've, you've expanded into that role. Oh. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's so yes. beautiful. And I know VD, you, you gave us so many great resources today. So we're going to link all of those in our show notes. That mm-hmm. way everybody can um, download the frameworks and watch the videos and, and keep, you know, exploring with some of the different tools that you've offered us today. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really enjoy talking about this. I could talk about it much, much longer. Let me tell you. So if ever you want to like reinvite part me. Part two. Yeah, say a follow-up. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a part two for sure. Yeah. Well, we'll see what questions come out of this from our community and then maybe we'll do a follow-up episode. So if y'all have questions after this episode, send us an email and we'll see if Edie's willing to do a follow-up for us. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. You're awesome. welcome. Take care, Vidi. We'll see you soon. Okay, bye. Wow, wow, wow. That was such an informative conversation today with our friend Vidi Diana. We hope that you guys love this discussion as much as we did and can walk away with this with some new opportunities for growth. We encourage each of you to visit the show notes section of our podcast. Uh, We are going to link all the great resources that Vididiana gave us throughout the show so that we can all continue our anti-racism work. And if you know someone who would love this episode, please take a moment and share this with them. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Healing With Purpose Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another great episode. See you then. Bye.